0: you are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So tonight we're starting once again in this course of discipleship. We're going to be talking about the biblical expectations. It's kind of the big picture of what we're doing here. What does discipleship mean? I say this story to kind of start us off, but years ago, I was gathered with a group of pastors, and we had a pastor who had served in the ministry probably about 50 years, was our mentoring pastor. Uh, That day, he had asked us, he said, I've been teaching you a lot of different things over the last few months, and now I want to ask you, what's one thing that you'd want me to teach on? So there's a few things that people of popping in. And I like to know how you handle this or do that. And then all of a sudden one person said, I would love how, to know how you did personal discipleship. And he said, I have no idea what you mean, so somebody else is going to have to teach that. To which I start laughing because I think he's joking. He goes, why are you laughing at me? I said, you do know what discipleship means. He goes, no, I don't. For 50 years of ministry, everybody in the church has been saying, we want discipleship. I have no idea what they mean. I preach on Sunday. we got Sunday school classes. We do events. What else are they talking about? And I said, oh, he's serious, right, okay? This is somebody who's been 50 years in the ministry, leads a very successful church, and is mentoring us younger pastors, right? And I'm sitting there thinking, like, surely this is a joke. Surely, and it wasn't. And so I began, he said, so what do you think discipleship is? And I said, I believe it is the role of every responsible uh, believer in Jesus Christ to say, I'm going to grow and I'm going to help somebody else grow. At the basic formation, that's what discipleship is. And I said, you've probably been doing that, but you've never really thought about it in that type of way. And so he said, we'll, we'll talk about discipleship next time, but you're going to lead the course. And I was like, oh, okay, right? And, and so the, the floor the microphone was given to me, and, and Travis, you're, you're going to teach us on what discipleship means. What I want us to do for the next few weeks is that we're going to talk about what does discipleship mean. We've got to go to where the heart of this is. Um, I believe that probably most like so many of us here, that if we think through um, the issue of discipleship, that the Great Commission was never plan B according to God's agenda. From the very beginning, God desired to create a community of people helping one another to follow him. Make sense? So uh, the Great Commission was never, ever plan B according to God's agenda. Uh, I once heard a pastor tell a funny story. He talked about how when Jesus um, gave the Great Commission, he ascended to the Father, and he's there, and there's this huge angelic party probably going on. Like, man, Jesus, he defeated sin and death and the devil. Look at this. This is so awesome. Like, man, Jesus is awesome. Now what's going to happen? He said, well, I've given the disciples the Great Commission, and they're going to go tell other people about it. And some bold angel goes, are you kidding me? Right? You left that to Peter and James and John and Bartholomew? Like, that's who you left it to? He's like, yeah. What's plan B? Like, what if they drop the ball? Do you want us to come and clean up their act? Are you going to send somebody else in? Do you want the angels to come in and step into this? Like, are you going to go back down? What's plan B to which Jesus replied, there is no plan B? There is no plan B. The plan, from the very beginning, uh, articulated within the Great Commission, reminded the Great Commission, is this. From the very beginning... God desired to create a community of people helping one another to follow him. So I want to show you this thread throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, and I promise you will get home before bedtime tonight. Okay, so let's start in the Old Testament, okay? Let's look at what does it mean that in the Old Testament was discipleship a thing? So at its core, the biblical message centers on people learning how to follow God. At the very heart, when you look at the pages of Scripture, what's taking place is... Biblical message it centers on one thing people learning how to follow God and you say well, where do they learn to follow God? And what exactly does that mean? It's it's more than just obey God that you don't know it's more than just sort of revere God from a distance It is learning how to follow God to learning how to follow God means you must be close enough to be able to be in pace with him Look at uh, these verses here. I left for you Uh, Leviticus chapter 26 verse 12 and says this is God speaking And I will do what? I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. So in this sense, do you even see like in Leviticus, folks? Is that the type of verse you expect to read in Leviticus? I don't think so. You you think of like, kill this pigeon and do this with the blood and throw this on the wall. That's what Leviticus seems like. In the heart of Leviticus is this. God is saying, I'm going to walk among you walk among us? Like, that sounds like close relationship. God's going, now you're getting it, right? I'm going to walk among you, you, and and I will be your God, and you, you're going to be my people. That's the goal. That's the goal, this intimate relationship of what God's after. Then he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, gather the people to me. So they're about to go into the promised land, right? Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may What? Teach their children so. Okay? So get this picture. When the children walked into Canaan. So we're in Deuteronomy. They're about to go into Joshua, which means they're about to go into the promised land. And so there's this moment, right? Remember the Passover? But here's this generation experienced the Passover in Egypt. But when they get down into Canaan, guess what they have? All these kids who never experienced that first Passover. So he says, dads, moms, you teach your children so that this lesson is not forgotten. They weren't there. You're going to have to teach them. What do you want us to? I don't know. Make the religious, you know, people. No, no, no. You teach your kids to do this. This is passing on generation to generation. Um, gather the people. Let may hear my words. They may learn to fear. Uh, look at this next in Deuteronomy chapter ten, verse twelve through thirteen. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to what? Walk in how many of His ways? All of His ways. So let me just stop there. You know how we've been talking today about sanctifying you completely? So there's some of you right now that are walking with God in some of your ways. That's awesome. But until you're walking with God in all of your ways, God's not done with you yet. He's still going to keep working. And so in this process, he's going, okay, people of God, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to do what? To love him, to serve the Lord with all your, your God with all your heart. Once again, not some of your heart, does it? all your heart. We've got to get down to that level. And with how much of your soul? All of it. All of it. Like I so said, we're going to find some areas where you're not following them. We've got to dig in there. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for what? Your good. Before we go any further, I'm not going to get on a soapbox, but can I tell you something? God's commandments are for your good. They are. I know they don't feel good. I know when your mama used to tell you stuff not to do, and you're like, "Man, it's going to keep me away from doing all the fun stuff. God actually has your best interest in mind when he gives you commands. When your mama said don't play in the road, it's not because she didn't want you to play. She wanted you to play longer, right? Play in the road. You play for a minute, and that'll be the last game you play, right? I can't believe you don't want me to play. I actually do want you to play. I want you to play all your life, but if you play in the road, that's where people go and die. That You don't go play in the road, right? So when God says don't commit adultery, You're trying to hinder my life. Oh, no, 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 no. He is for your good, right? He is saying one relationship is challenging enough, right? Okay. One relationship with one person, making it faithful and consistent and and engaging for all your life. That's challenging enough. Two, good luck, right? You're asking for conflict. Yeah, but you know what? That moment of pleasure, it's not worth it. It's not. So the commands of God are actually for our good. And so here he is. In our, in our relationship with us, teaching us how to do this. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. Here it goes. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not, what? Rebel, Rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if, I love this, both you and the what? King. The king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. It will be well. Can I tell you why it's not going okay in your world? Because you may not be following the Lord. You know why it's not okay in any government in the world? Because they are not following the Lord. You and your king need to follow the Lord. That's where peace is found. And, and so this whole this whole thing, right? Most kings go, I'm too important to follow anybody. And God's going, and that'll be the downfall of that nation, right? You need to follow the Lord. And you go, Like, even in the Old Testament passage, Jesus isn't on the ground yet, but there's this idea of following the Lord is built in, even to the law and the history sections Of the Old Testament. God expected his people to pass on a legacy of faith to the following generations. So as they followed God, their job was then to turn and teach the following generations to do what? To learn how to follow the Lord. Missing element, most of our lives, and I'm gonna say this probably until I'm blue in the face. Most of us have had stories in our spiritual walk that look like this. Come to church and you'll learn how to do it but we've rarely had somebody say come follow me and I'll teach you how to follow the Lord most of us have never had that mentor say come follow me most of you have been guilted you need to have a quiet time nobody's ever showed you how to do one you've been encouraged to share your faith with somebody, nobody's ever said watch how I do this you've been encouraged, you better love your spouse and treat them well, no one's ever invited you in the home and show you how it's done is, that, is this making sense to you? We're missing so so here it is built into the fabric of the old testament. You're gonna follow the Lord, and as you're following the Lord, guess what? You are leaving breadcrumbs along the way, saying, Come on this way behind me, right? You come alongside and follow me. God gave three types of relational environments, I believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament in our lives for the sake of discipleship. Three types, relational environments, key to our growth, whether or not we ever accept it or not. You can have one of these and you can be doing good, two of these doing better, but if all three are falling on all cylinders, you're going to be in good shape. Three types of relational environments for the sake of discipleship. And you go Old Testament, what could they be? Prophet, priest, king? No. Something so much simpler than that. These three discipleship relationships were key in the Old Testament, key in the New Testament, key in our lives. Let's talk about the first one. It is what? Families. Families. Now, for those who know me, know I would spend the next two weeks of your life beating this drum. Um, for those who don't know, when I was when I was at a place in seminary, I finished my master's, and I knew that if I was ever going to get a doctorate, if I didn't go right away, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna go back because the way I am, I'm gonna find something to do, okay? And all my time's gonna be consumed in it. And if I didn't continue that path, I'd walk out later in that life, not be able to get to it. So I said, if I'm gonna get a doctorate, I'm gonna get it now. So um, I started my doctorate program about the time I was also becoming a father. Really smart idea, by the way, okay? There's nothing else going on in life. I'm working a full-time job. I'm trying to get my doctorate and trying to learn how to be husband and dad, all this kind of stuff. So, um, I can remember being at Southern Seminary and trying to determine what's my doctoral focus going to be. So this is what you have to commit to. Years of the, the next few years of my life, I'm going to read, study, interview, and write on this topic, okay? And the path that I was taking is something that should benefit the church at large, and specifically the church I was part of. So um, when it was getting time for one of my one-week seminars to go up to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, Obadiah was six weeks old, and my wife looks at me and says... You know what? We're just gonna be hanging out in the house anyway, and just trying to struggle sleep. It'd be best if all three of us are together, so we'll just go up to seminary with you. It sounded really tender. It sounded really sweet. It sounded really practical. It was horrible. Okay, absolutely the worst idea that you could ever imagine in your life. Because it seemed like, oh, we're going to just be wonderful together. Okay, so I'm going to be in class from like 8 to 8. I'm supposed to stay up at night, read and write. And then here's this baby who is not sleeping, who's completely trying to burn the whole place down. And we're just going to be like, what do you want to do? We just love each other forever. I thought I was going to die. I was literally at any point. This was so bad, so rough, so challenging. And so, um, Obi wasn't sleeping at the time. He's waking up in the middle of the night. So we're on this, you know, hotel beds. And anyway, no matter how comfortable it is, it ain't your own bed. You just don't sleep well. You know, at least least the way I am. So I'm struggling. I'm going through all this kind of stuff. I finally get to the place, no lie, where I'm going. I'm struggling. I'm working through this. And one night he was having a hard time sleeping. He starts stirring around six o'clock in the morning. Amanda's finally asleep. I pick that boy up really quick. I throw him in the stroller, and I just take him out of the hotel, right? And I'm just going, okay, if she can sleep, I'm not going to be asleep anyway. Maybe I can get this boy back to sleep. So I remember I had him in the stroller at sunrise, trying to, like, these, like, brick uh, walkways. I'm trying to, like, just, you know, vibrate him to get to sleep. And then he's just going to sleep, boy. So we're walking around, this kind of stuff. Stop your whining. right? And I, and I was like, I had to make the call that day. What's my doctoral focus going to be on? Never forget Every time I'm like, Lord, i got to have a direction. What could be the greatest significant uh, investment of my next few years for the kingdom of God? And then Obie would start going, yeah, yeah. I'm like, shut up. I'm talking to Jesus. Okay, like, you know, <laughs> here he is. Lord, will you send me a sign? What's something that I can invest in that can make a difference for your impact? And he'd start crying again and say, just go to sleep, right, okay? And I'm pushing the stroller a little bit harder and whatnot. Lord, I need to know what could be the best use but my time to invest in for furthering the kingdom of God. And at sunrise outside of that library, I just look at that boy and I said, it's him. It's him. It's not a program at church. It's not an initiative I could do. It's this boy. If I could invest everything that I got in my life into him when one day he's 14, or 18 or 21 he's gonna be so much further than whatever I could imagine and he's not gonna be growing up going like hey you know I'm just I'm, I'm Pastor Trav's, you know son there's coming a day where I'm gonna be like my claim to fame I'm Obie's daddy right I'm Eli's dad I'm Gloria's dad why families are one of the most missing elements to this discipleship picture it's given in the Old Testament focus in the New Testament now, I'm telling you um, I thank God because if nobody else has benefited from my heart from this, when I look at my kids, and there's a lot of mistakes that I have made, um, I, I got two almost 14-year-old boys now. They love Jesus, and they're, they're striving to be like him, and they're, they're, they're at a place beyond whatever I could imagine and in the same way, folks. Same thing for glory and, and, and this, this issue comes down to, to families. Look at how this works. I believe that the most critical discipleship environment has always been the home. And you go, isn't it the church? Here's what I know. If something happens in the great United States of America and they say we cannot meet, I'm still going to disciple my family. Amen. They bar the doors. They, 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 they take away our ability to meet. I'm going to be shepherd, prophet, and priest to that people. those people in my family. They're not stopping what's going on inside the family. And this is why it's so important for us. Um, Why why are our young people in the spiritual shape they're into? Because back in the 1970s, we started farming out the responsibility of moms and dads to youth pastors. Now, as as gently as I can say that, uh, I love student ministry. I speak at student camps. I love our student pastor. I encourage my kids to be a part of student ministry. But you know what? You're talking hours of a kid's week if they're there every single week. And you can preach two good sermons to them and two great Bible studies a week, but do you know how many sermons they're hearing from the world all week long? I don't care. The best youth sermon in the world on a Wednesday night, the best youth group on a Sunday morning cannot compete with TikTok on their phone all day long. It can't. There's too many sermons coming at them all the time, right? And so this is why it's so important. At, at the very best, let's say um, there's four Sundays uh, a month, right, typically. Um, back in the day, a good church member was in church, how many of those Sundays a month? Four, right? Probably about 20 years ago, I was like, all right, three, and you're still a good church member. Nowadays? <laughs> Don't even talk to me about what the standard is anymore, Right? So you go, best student ministry in the world, best children's ministry in the world. If you had the best preaching in the world, here's all this content. We're talking about hours in a month. Do you know that you have 936 Sundays from the time that a child is born to the time they turn 18? Now you just imagine if you start doing division, how many hours we're talking about a spiritual formation if somebody only brings their child one out of every four times. So, so why is that important? Take away all the church, all the ministries in the world. And what should you have? A dad and mom loving Jesus and teaching their kids how to do so. That is foundational. You may say, I never had that. Join the club. But can you provide it for somebody else? God provides you with kids, grandkids, nephews, nieces, friends, whatever. Can you pour yourself in to see these kids going further faster? Look at these references. I, 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 I got to go quick. Here we go. Um, Genesis 18, 19. God looks at Abraham on the way to destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's talking to these different people that are with him. He says, hey, should I I hide from uh, Abram what I'm about to do? And then he says this, that I want Abram. And and remember, Abram has been given the, the charge of he has been blessed so that he will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, he says, here's the strategy, that Abraham will teach his son and his house after him to follow the ways of the Lord. What's the other strategy? There is no other strategy. You're talking about global blessing. It's got to be more advanced. Should we start a seminary? Should we start an organization? Should we start some kind of systematic thing? He goes, one dad teaching his one boy to follow the Lord. That's how the world's going to be changed. You tell me how you want to change the world right now. That's the picture of it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and you shall teach this love to your children diligently. You need to talk about him when you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. This is foundational. He says, have it on, on the your hands, on your, your head, on the doorpost of your house. Let God's word permeate your life in your home, through your kids, to your doorpost, and then it goes to the community. This is the goal. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Choose who you want to, but I'll tell you this. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Our decision. Whole culture can go to hell in a handbasket. We're going to follow Jesus. That's what we're going to do, no matter what, right? 1 Kings chapter two, verse two through three. Here is now uh, King David talking about his son Solomon. He goes, I want you to grow up and be a man and follow after the Lord. Psalm chapter 78, verses 1 through 8. This is a beautiful passage. It says, um, we shall teach the coming generations the great deeds of the Lord. It's our responsibility to pour this out to them. Psalm 103, 17, that we would teach God's loving kindness to the children's children. Uh, Psalm chapter 127, one through five, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in. Dang. You you had to build your house and all kinds of stuff, but it comes back to the home. Proverbs chapter one verse eight: Don't forsake your father's instruction or your mother's teaching. Proverbs chapter twenty two verse six: Train up a child in the way he should go, and what? When he's old, he gonna come back to it some way or the other, right? It's your job, fathers and mothers. Malachi chapter four verse six says it this way: um, That when he comes, speaking about the coming Messiah, that he will bring the hearts of the fathers back to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Or else, I will smite the land with a curse right now you are seeing that lived out in the united states of america because the father's hearts are not towards the children the children are not towards the fathers and i will say this are we under a curse in this nation look around goes down to the family goes down to the family no matter what's happening in the church house the white house if it's not happening in your house something is missing the original call was god to say you're gonna make disciples do it through your home also second category relationships relationships are so key outside of the home where that's pivotal. Some of you would say, well, if it's only based on family members, then I'm in trouble, right? Okay, I don't need you to give a testimony to that. I just know that if you go, if my spiritual health is dependent upon how godly my dad and mom are, I'm in trouble. Well, that's where God brings in other relationships to fill the gap oftentimes. God expected leaders to utilize any relational platform to further the faith of others. If you think about it, God used different leaders to utilize these different relational platform, and they help further the faith of others. Along the Old Testament, you see the baton passing from someone to this next person, to this person in a relationship, and so often, there are these pictures of what God is doing through these relationships. Um, and one of the books for this class, in Wilkins, page 62, he says it this way, The disciple was in training to carry out the master's work once the master passed from the scene. Got it? Here's this picture. It doesn't stop in the death of someone. It's actually multiplied after the death. Why? Because people are taking that charge and what they've done and even going in more places than one person could do. Examples of the Old Testament. Remember Jethro and Moses? Moses is this godly man, but here's his father-in-law Jethro going, son, you're going to miss out on life if you don't get some things straight. Let me teach you in a certain way. And you go, just practical delegation and practical like business management. Why is that important? That happened in Exodus chapter 18 at Rephidim. In Exodus chapter 19, Moses gets Sinai. I'm telling you, without Jethro telling him to learn how to delegate and get his life in order, without Rephidim, there is no Sinai. Here's his mentor saying, i got to teach you in some ways, right? Right. Uh, Moses and Joshua, Moses and Caleb teaching these other people to carry on. Why? Moses was going to die and Joshua was going to carry on. Moses was going to die. Caleb's still going to be killing giants. Uh, Naomi passing on her faith to Ruth. Eli passing on to Samuel, right? Here's Samuel, this young boy in the temple. And Eli saying, let me give you everything that I, I can give you samuel and saul here's samuel trying to teach this king who thinks he's mighty and important you're actually not that mighty and important and i'm going to save you boy right he's trying to teach david and the mighty men i love this part um you know we always know about david and goliath right do you know that goliath is not the only giant that ever got killed in the old testament did you know that there's actually a time in first chronicles uh free in the chapter maybe chapter 20 where david's mighty men kill other giants. And in fact, one's like, this killed uh, Goliath's brother, who was actually bigger and had more toes than Goliath did. I don't know why we need to know that, but we do, okay? Uh, This guy over here is bigger than this, and this guy does this, and this guy does this, and he just lays it all out there, right? Here's all these different people that killed, and you go, why don't we teach about that story? Why is that not a big deal? You know why? Because when Saul was the king and David becomes a giant killer, it's big news. Why? Fear in the palace, fear in the people, right? Okay? It was a big deal when you got fear in the palace. And here's this boy who says, I'll be a giant killer. But when the giant killer is the leader, you've got giant killer followers and it's not that big of a deal anymore. He's taught them, oh, this is how you do it. You trust in the Lord and you be brave and you go forward and you do what God has called you to do. Here's this passing of even to the mighty men. Elijah and Elisha. Oh my goodness, this story is incredible, right? What do you want? I want a double portion of what you got, right? Okay. I want to just do ministry like you've done. And he's like, you've been here with me. And I'm going to pray and give everything I can. The man of leadership pass on to you, a double portion of my spirit to go forth. And you see Elijah go forth. Jeremiah, uh, and Joash, Jeremiah, and Baruch, and there's others. We, we see it all throughout. Third area, faith communities. This is so important. Because in addition to parents, in addition to mentoring relationships, faith communities was built and established So that discipleship could take place. God's instruction for organized religion was for people to obtain a version of, guess what it was? Eden restored. What does that mean? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He put Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, right? This is where they were to experience the presence of God, enjoy the promises of God, enjoy walking with God. Their sin got them kicked out of the garden. And ever from that point on, the narrative journey is to get them back to Eden, right? That's That's the whole deal. So follow this: Why did the tabernacle exist, so that they could have a a moment, a glimmer of hope to be restored into the presence of God? Not completely. It wasn't Eden, but it was supposed to represent Eden. Why well, was the temple created, so they could somehow get back symbolically and experience the presence of God? Because they've been sin and kicked them out. But why does the sacrificial system exist, so that just like Adam and Eve could? cover up with garments of skin and not walk in their shame that the sacrifice of another would cover them so they could be in the presence of God. What does the promised land represent? You're out of God's presence, but we're going to take you to a place of milk and, uh, flowing milk and honey, right? Everything that you want. Here's a blessing to provide for you in a place where the borders are secure and God is dwelling with his people. All of the Old Testament's picture is this. So when they would gather as God's people, it was a reminder, we're going to be restored into God's presence. Now, was it completely? No. No. But it was a taste of it. It was a picture of it. If you think through in these references, you look at Exodus chapter 12 talking about the Passover, chapter 20 talking about uh, the Lord, how he's cared for us, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all these different places we go through. There's so many of the elements of what's taking place. I I do want to highlight uh, one right here, uh, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Uh, where it says this about Ezra who was a scribe, he was a priest, he was leading people back into the presence of the Lord. This is my mentality when I'm studying God's word, Ezra chapter seven ten. It says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's what I do when I read the Bible. First off, I set my heart, I'm going to read the Bible. When I wake up tomorrow, I'm going to read it. Number two, guess what I do? I read it, okay? You're like, this, this is really complex. I know, I'm a real complicated person, right? I set my heart, I'm going to study the Word. Number two, I actually study the Word. And how long do I study it until I do something about it? That's why some of y'all get bored reading the Bible. You're not applying it. I just keep reading until I go, and that's what I need to do, right? Okay, that's what I need to pray about. That's what I need to fix. That's what I need to pray and ask for. And then number four, which is the missing component in some of our stories, I'm going to teach other people how to do it. What if your mentality tomorrow, if you get up and read the Bible, I'm going to read the Bible until I figure out something I need to change in my life and somebody I can share this with. It may not be in a pulpit, but there could be a, a, a conversation with a friend. It could be some type of way, something you, you post out there that you share, you write in a card, you, you find something. Set your heart to study. I'm going to decide. I'm going to study. I'm going to do it. I'm going to apply it. Then I'm going to teach somebody else. That's how discipleship comes. Folks, There are so many lessons you're learning right now. Shame on us if we don't share it with somebody else, right? Shame on us if we don't. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the goal. That God's glory would go among all the world as the waters cover the sea. And this would happen by God's people speaking about God and teaching others to do the same. Now, we went to the Old Testament. we got to go to the New Testament a little bit quicker. Let, let's look into this. Um, we know this about Jesus' call to the original disciples, right? Because this is typically where we think, okay, disciples came here. But you see through the Old Testament, it was before at this moment. We also see that when Jesus called his first disciples, he did not command them to obey, serve, or fear, but what? Follow. Matthew chapter 4 19, he looks at a bunch of fishermen named Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he says, Follow me, and I'm going to make you what? Fishers of men. You want us to love you? Yeah, that, that's fine. You want us to obey you? Sure. You, you want us to serve you? Yeah. But all that's wrapped up in this thing Follow me. Come on up after me, right? You learn from me, so I'm, I'm going to be moving this direction, and if you want to learn, you got to be moving. That's why so many times when people say, "I just feel stagnant in my faith," are you moving? Because <laughs> Jesus is on the move, right? He's saying, "Come on, I'm going to new places. I'm doing new things. I got in- incredibly exciting stuff. Like I-, I do. Some days, like I feel like uh, we were laughing earlier about you know this whole opportunity for a Mission House." Like Donald was laughing at me. He said, Wednesday, when you heard about this thing and we have to go to like crazy crunch mode, you just like, this is awesome. And I was like, cause some mornings I pray like, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do. I pray. I'm ready. Okay. Like I, I'm pretty like on the dime. I'm ready to go. Here's the thing. Jesus is saying, come follow me. Don't just come sit and talk about me. Come on. Let's move. Right. It's more than just obey, serve, or fear. It it is a call to follow. His initial requirements for his disciples were characterized by these key elements. Let's break them down really quick. Number one was pursuit. When it says in Mark chapter 3 about these disciples, it says, He called those whom he desired. He called those whom he desired. Uh, This is mind-boggling to me that the most humbling aspect of kingdom work is found in the fact that Jesus doesn't need us, but that he wants us. When Jesus called the disciples, he did not call those whom he needed. He called those whom he desired. He wanted them. Um, we sang the song, I think, last week. Uh, those he saves are his delight. I have the hardest time singing that line sometimes. Do you really delight in me, Lord? Like, I feel like you're going, oh, those he saves is his drudgery. You know, like, I it. okay, fine, I'll save you. I don't like you that much. But no, those he saves are his delight. Here he is. The pursuit is... He called those whom he pursued, whom he desired. He wanted them. And if you were called to be a disciple, guess what? He wants you. Let me me tell you this real quick, just make sure you hear me. One of the things that's so helpful in the reading that I've been doing and preparing for these weeks of classes is this. A lot of people uh, differentiate, follow this, there are Christians and there are disciples. Okay. You might have heard that designation before. There's people who believe enough to be saved. They've gotten baptized, and they're just kind of starting Christian, but they don't do a whole lot. But then there's this group of people who are really serious, and they're growing, and they're our disciples. I want to let you know something from me. I do not think you can be a Christian without being a disciple. I think the moment you're not being called to believe in him, you are called to follow him. Now, you might be a disciple who's really slow and stagnant, right? But it's not like, oh, discipleship is just for all those really spiritual people. No, discipleship for you. Mm-hmm. discipleship's for me. So no matter what, he desires us to follow him. Number two, there is a presence. It says when he called those whom he desired, he called them to be with him. Is what Mark chapter 3 verse says. To be with him. And so for me, it's don't attempt things for Jesus before you've spent time with Jesus. The whole aspect of, once again, following the Lord of the Old Testament, following Jesus in the New Testament is be in his presence. Be with him. Uh, don't, don't be surprised if you're not hearing a word, if you're not spending time with him. You got to talk with him. You got to learn from him. You got to be walking in his presence. And so, with this, there, there's this mentality. If you think back at 1 Samuel chapter uh, 3, it talks about uh, Samuel was in Eli's presence, and it says this haunting, haunting thing. You ready for this? Samuel was a young boy. He was serving in uh, the, the religious community there, and it says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And then a few verses later, it says this, but Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Follow this. You can work for the Lord before you actually know him. That's scary to me, right? There's a lot of people busy for things, but do you really, really know him? Jesus says, I want you to be with me. I want you to be present with me. Third thing, there's a purpose. He sent them out to preach. And so we participate in the kingdom ministry by sharing what others, sharing with others what Jesus has taught us. Now, I don't know how many of you consider yourself preachers but the reality is this preaching can be a vocation but preaching is also a verb right okay i'm going to preach to someone you're proclaiming something what do i do when i preach i am opening up god's word and explaining it to somebody else and every single person in this room you are called to do that in some form you may not be called to get a living from that You may not be called to surrender all your time to it but i can tell you this if you learn something from god's word you ought to be able to share it with somebody else i hope i pray to god that i broke down those two verses well enough for our church that you could turn and say i think i can explain that to somebody else right well guess what you are preaching you are proclaiming you are giving that great news to somebody else the last thing here is power uh he gave them authority to cast out demons some of you are like yes this is what I came here for. Like, if I'm going to have anything on my LinkedIn profile, I want to be able to cast out demons, you know, before 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Well, while that may sound scary to you and you don't know exactly what that means, demons represent that dark presence, the power of the antagonistic work of what God is doing. And ministry is pushing back Satan's dominion and ushering in God's kingdom. So when he gave them authority to cast out demons, he's saying this, you don't have to surrender to the darkness. You don't have to surrender to the devil's way. No, no, no. We're in the business of making his life miserable. That's what I'm calling you out to do. I love, if you ever read uh, Acts chapter uh, 17, it talks about the seven sons of Sceva, right? (laughs) Here come these guys. They come upon these Jewish guys who don't believe in Jesus, but they, they start this healing ministry to get these demons out. Why? Because these people are all this success, and they're trying to make a buck off of it. So they go up. They don't believe in the name of Jesus. They don't like Paul, but they start going to these demon-possessed people and saying, I tell you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches about, come up out of that man. This one demon looks at them and says, We know Jesus, and we're aware of Paul, but who are you? <laughs> and this one man jumps on these seven men, beat them, half dead, half naked, and they are running out of the room, right? And all of a sudden, everybody's like, I think we need a new business strategy, okay? What was the picture? Now, this is a scary thing. This This blows my mind. Obviously, would demons know the name of Jesus? Yeah. But apparently, they knew the name of Paul, too. Why? Paul was doing so much frustrating work for their business. Paul was on the most wanted list in hell. If we could just shut him up, gosh, we could get our business back. He's taking so many people out of the hands of of our master here. Like we gotta shut this man up. Come on, shipwreck that ship he's in. Man, let's beat him a little bit. Let's imprison him. Let's try to kill him, and he just keeps going forward. He's gets beaten, thrown out of out of the city, and what does he do? Gets back up, goes back in, and preaches second round. Right? The other demons knew about Paul. The question is this: Does he? Do they know your name? Do do. do, do Do the demons see me wake up and go, Oh, man, not him again, right? Are we not even a blip on the radar? Jesus says, you be my disciple? The demons are going to know you by name. They're going to get frustrated when you're up in the morning. You know why? You're bad for their business. Jesus says, I'm going to call you because I desire you. I want you to be with me. I'm going to teach you to teach other people, and you're going to be pushing back the kingdom of darkness. His call for the disciples is often like our call as well. Jesus provided the disciples marching orders through the what? Through the Great Commission. Through the Great Commission. This, as he is ascending into heaven, he's been on the earth for 40 days, he has poured his life out before these people. And he tells them these words as he ascends into heaven. After defeating death, after defeating sin, after defeating the power of darkness, he looks at a group of now 11 disciples and some some other disciples of those, but these 11 remaining, some others. And he gives them these words. He says to them, All authority has been given to me, where? In heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of how many nations? All the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or apply all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm going to be what? I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. What does this mean for the Great Commission? The commission to make disciples of all nations... Our call is to go everywhere so we can disciple everyone. That's our call. Our call as a church, we are called to go everywhere so that we can disciple everyone. Is it the job of every single Christian to go to every single nation and follow Jesus? No, but it is the job of the church to say, we're going to be in this. We're going to go. We're going to send. We're going to pray. We're going to support. We're going to see what our lives can do to make a difference for the gospel. And so it's to make disciples not of some of the nations, but how many? All the nations. We look and realize that commitment. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why would they do that? Our faith is not to be a private but a public association with God's people. This commitment in the Great Commission is this. He did not say go get baptized in solitary confinement. Don't get baptized and it's kind of quietly. No, no, no. Get baptized where everybody will see that you were dead and now you're brought back to life. There's something beautiful and symbolic about this moment that you would think about water the chaos and you're going down. It's like you're going down to the grave but somebody bringing you back up. And this is a symbol not for God to see that you're serious but for everybody else to see it right? For everybody else. That's why I explain baptism just like this wedding ring. I can take this wedding ring off and guess what? I'm still married. I can give this wedding ring to one of you. It does not mean you're married to my wife. I put it on. Why? Not so I'm married, but because I show other people I am. That's what baptism is, right? Right? I'm not afraid to say I associate with Jesus and I associate with all y'all. And so I want to symbolically say this is what's happened to me in my life and you're committing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I belong to them and I belong to the people of God. The commandment, teaching them to observe all that I commanded, our job is incomplete when a person places initial faith into a Savior who expects complete devotion. He does not say teaching them to observe some of what I've commanded. He does not say once they've been saved and baptized, your job is done. No, the great commission is this you go and make disciples and teach them to to observe all that I have commanded you. Our job is not, so so my job as a dad, right, is to take everything I've got and pour it into my kids. My job as a pastor, take everything I got and pour it into you. To take the young men that are going through ministry preparation and go, I'm gonna take everything I got and give it to you. Why? To come and teach and, and because It's not enough, once again, just to say, well, I follow Jesus, and I I mean well. No, but are you completely following him? So we teach each other how to do this. And finally, the communion that the Great Commission promises, where he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Our proximity to the king is intricately linked to our productivity for his kingdom. The closer you are to Jesus, guess what? The more you're going to do for him. The more that I'm walking with him, the more that I experience his presence in my life. The more that I see all of that, what God can do, and I'm just saying, when Jesus <laughs> left these disciples, he's like, they're going, how are we going to do this? I'm going to be with you. Don't try to do this alone. John, John 15, right? Abide in me. I in you, right? Don't you dare try to do anything without me because apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. You better stay connected, right? So the job's still walking, following in the presence of the Lord. And then when I say Jesus' consummation with the disciples, finally, th- this is the picture I want you to get. The end goal is when we are within such proximity to Jesus that our eternities are spent, what? Following him. That's the goal. Above all else, the initial goal of being in Eden, guess what? It's to get back there one day. To be in his presence again. To be what only Jesus could do. And then the end goal is also, right? Y'all ready for something really cool to think about? That on that day when we finally get to see Jesus, and we got eternity to spend with him and, and be among the saints. And then one day, you guys are going to come along somebody named Ibrahim. I know Ibrahim, by the way. Uh, he grew up Muslim. Everybody was Muslim. But a group from this church went out to his tribe and kept sharing Jesus with them. He actually taught Islam to other people. And one day, Ibrahima came to follow Jesus. He's still got some things to work through, but let me just tell you, he's sitting there with his family all around him, and he, and he says these words to me. I said, uh, "Ibrahim, uh, the Muslim way says this about Jesus, and the Christianity says this about Jesus. Both of these things are contradictory. Not both of them can be true at the same time. One of them might be true, or neither of them might be true, but both of them cannot be true. He goes, I understand that. I said, so which one do you think is true? He said, I think what you speak about Jesus is true. Both his wives went, "Whoa, what? <laughs> okay, like they What? And I said so what do you mean and these were his words to me But I cannot follow jesus and let someone tells me how Unless someone shows me I, I can't do it right So, so the, the goal of all this folks is that one day You might even be around In heaven with jesus end goal is you meet ibrahima We meet somebody from the other side of the world and you go Hey, can you tell me your story? Oh, man, it's just so incredible. You know, I met Jesus, you know, back in 2033. and uh, 33. Um, it's crazy. There was this church that sent uh, some missionaries over to my village where I lived. Oh, yeah, what was the church called? It's crazy. It's, they called it the Rocky Creek. I don't know what they got over there in America, but they got these creeks that are rocky, supposedly. And there was this group of missionaries that came all the way over there. They left the comforts of their home. They spent a lot of money so they could spend some time on a dirt floor sleeping there, eating all who knows what, and walking through the desert so that they could get this message to me. And you say, I remember when I paid for that plane ticket for that missionary to go. And maybe you weren't the one who said those words, but you've got to be a part of that story. And and what is the task? It's for us to be caught up in one day this moment where we're all gathered back together in the presence of Christ and in the presence of other people that we have said, as we are following Jesus, come follow us. Come on he's worth it. This is the way he's going, right? And and look at this Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is what? (laughs) Think about it. No more temple. No more sanctuary. We'll get to that. It says he will dwell with them and they will be his what? People. People. And God himself will be them as their God. He's going to be with us again, back to where it should have been in Eden. And in verse 22 it says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is what? The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The mighty and the meek. The judge and the sacrifice. All of these things. And one day we will gather back together for this. And so, folks, the heartbeat of discipleship is this. God has called us to follow him. Plan A from the beginning. And as we follow him, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. That's the goal for our lives. That's what he's called to be. So, the closer that you and I look like Jesus, the better opportunity those around us can look like him as well. There's a stewardship of what we even learned tonight from God's word. Not just to take it and to put it in a shelf somewhere, or to kind of discard all this stuff together. No, what are you going to do with it? Who were you going to teach? Who were you going to say, come follow me as I follow him? This is the call for discipleship. And folks, it is what we are called to be wrapped up in for our entire lives. And so, Father, we say tonight that as we look through the pages of the Old Testament, the New Testament, starting from what they should have been following you in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, but yet they chose their own path, and yet throughout the pages of Scripture and the pages of history, you've been calling people to follow you closer to walk with you, to have the opportunity to learn from you so that they can go and teach others as well through the environments of families and relationships and faith communities, through the nation of Israel, to the uh, church that has no geographical location or ethnic designation, to what is called that one day we are gathering all people back to be followers of the Lord. And so discipleship comes into play where we've got to grow closer to you and learn what it means to follow you so that we can in turn teach others to do as well. And Lord, I am just praying against a spirit of stagnation in this room that think that because we are better than our family members that somehow we've arrived. That just because we don't struggle with some of the great sins in our culture that thinks that we're good. No, 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 we're not okay with where we are. We want to know you more. We want to be closer to you, and we want to be sanctified completely in our whole spirit and soul and body. And The closer that we get to you, Jesus, the easier we can to point to where you're going. So Lord, I am asking, I am pleading, I am begging with you, teach us what does it mean to follow you, because there's some people around us that need to know how to as well. And we cannot point them to a direction of which we have not gone ourselves. We cannot tell them to taste and see that the Lord is good unless we've got those crumbs in our lap. We've got to learn how to follow you closer so that we can turn others as well. So God, would you help us in these next few weeks as a church family push in to what does it mean to follow you? In the name of Jesus we pray and all God's people said, thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out RockyCreek.Church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.